You really need to look in the mirror and really determine whether or not are you executing at the highest level in your core business? You know, when you ask the question, like, what does focus mean? It's being able to turn off the noise, turn off the distractions, and really put your time and attention on the things that you know to be the most important. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. If you're anything like me, you're constantly reading. And if you're tired of sifting through dozens of online blogs and Twitter feeds to get the commercial real estate news you need, subscribe to the CRE Daily Newsletter. Think of this email like your smart, no bullshit friend breaking down all the biggest stories, acquisitions, trends, and fundraisings of the day and compiling them into one digestible email that you'll actually enjoy reading. This newsletter is now read by over 65,000 real estate investors, brokers, developers, and deal junkies. The CRE Daily keeps you informed on the top national, regional, and property sector news that matters to your business without all the BS. Give it a try by subscribing free at CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years. And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients, like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5, and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Black Wings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community-driven, locally different since 1935. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. We'll start on a sentimental note. Kevin is one of the closest people to me. Kevin has been in YPO with me now for six years. We have shared a lot with each other. We've been through ups and downs together. We've we know our wins, we know our we know our losses, but if there's there's a few people that you meet along the way in life and Kevin is one of those for me. So I am super excited about today. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm honored actually to be here. I know I, this is my second time on the podcast. And I think that what 
makes me so excited or just like grateful for the opportunity to be here and chat with my buddy. That's kind of how I see this is that you've had so many incredible people since, you know, I was like one You're of the episode first. four. Yeah. So number four and how many episodes do you have now? You will be, yeah, 250. Yeah. So the amount of people that you've had in between that have just been really fascinating to listen to and educational and inspirational to be asked to come back a second time is just an honor. So thank you for having me. Of course, man. This is going to be a really fun conversation. When you know somebody this well, just the the depth of conversation really gets there. So we're going to cover a lot today. And and if you haven't listened to episode four, you really should. It's an incredible story about we, we, we did the first episode on how Kevin started his career in power sports from sweeping the floors of a shop to becoming the largest power sports dealer in Texas. But we're going to take it from there and what's kind of happened since that episode. So before we jump in, let's just set the primer. What do you do for a living? What did you do kind of in COVID? What do you do now? Like what's, how do you describe your business? So my business, you know, as founder and CEO of a power sports dealership group. And if you think about automotive dealership groups, you know, AutoNation or Sewell that is a brick and mortar vehicle dealership that has service parts, finance, all that stuff, locations. That's what we were. That's, that is the business I was in. So I was a brick and mortar power sports dealership group. We sold products like motorcycles, ATVs, UTVs, jet skis, boats, really kind of all the fun stuff, the toys. We represented about 20 different major OEMs. So that ranged from BMW, the motorcycle division, Polaris, Honda, Kawasaki, Indian motorcycles, et cetera. And so we had 10 locations in Texas. We had some locations in Georgia and then one in Alabama. And we actually grew from that one single location out in Weatherford to be the second largest in the United States pretty quickly, really. It's unbelievable. Okay. To set the stage, the the business Power Sports has been around for a long time. It is, you know, there's a lot of people that love it. But if there was one thing that I was really surprised about, okay, I remember when COVID started and we were kind of thinking, you know, what businesses might do well, what ones might not do well, what let's talk about what happened to power sports when COVID happened. Cause okay. I think it's a hell of a story. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's a story that if anybody on earth says that they could have predicted in any way, shape or form, what was going to happen, <laughs> they are an absolute liar period in the story. Because, you know, we had a great growing business. Our business was growing from acquisitions. Our business was growing from organic growth, from improving teams, locations, bringing in new brands and products and and really focusing on running a great business, right? So we were continually growing and we were growing. Some years we grew as much as 20%. On average, we wanted to grow 10, 10% or something like that, right? So going into 2020, we had, you know, a very, you know, clear plan that we had worked on for, you know, 90 days prior or something like that. And, you know, we, we anticipated 2020 for modest growth. We had backed off of acquisitions the last few years. Really, Why? We backed off acquisitions because we had really taken on a lot. You know, we were building new locations. We were merging locations together. We were trying to build out management teams. And I think we underestimated in the first five years the capital needs to really do things well. We underestimated the learning curve for growing management and leadership. So somewhere around 2017, I just made the decision that growth was not what was exciting because it was never an ego play for me. I really want to do well, right? I had investors and I had 
lending partners and there was just a certain expectation to meet and top line revenue is not one of them. Yeah, it's an exciting story for a, a, a period, but as I was looking at it for myself and for the team to really achieve the success that we were looking for, which was a financial success and a really like a healthy balance sheet and creating opportunity, it really became clear that we just needed to focus on what we had. We grew really, really quickly. The team was going from being excited about new opportunity to burnout. So I just wanted to get my hands wrapped around that. We tended to, you know, just kind of a the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit in me just tended to not chase shiny objects, which we hear the, all the buzzwords and those, you know, cliches. But we did. We were kind of like, okay, well, maybe we need to do this. Maybe we need to do that. And it was clear that we were just distracted and we needed to get refocused. We needed probably a little more discipline around, you know, how we looked at information, you know, how we talked about information, how we made decisions. And so in 2017, I made the decision that we were going to stop doing acquisitions and we were going to focus on really cultivating and training and investing in people. And so that's what we did. And we did that with the EOS program. Will you just expand? Because I think this is for everybody. I've talked about it a bunch on the pod. When you talk about not shiny objects and refocusing, from your perspective, what did what does focus mean to you? And now that you've experienced what the, the outcome that we'll eventually talk about, if just talk to people. Why, why does focus matter so much? Well, I think with, you know, you have to, you're best served, in my opinion, focusing on the things that are your core competency. And, you know, until you've really mastered that in some way, then you really haven't earned the right to go focus on some of the other things that may seem fun. You know, the, one of the hard things, and and I think for entrepreneurs in general is like, you're almost looking for an out or an excuse of why you're not executing just here in your core business. Yep. And so it's it's mm. it's easier to just go, well, we need to be doing e-commerce. We mm. need to be doing rentals. We need to do these things. Like a bigger building is going to you know, make the difference. It, no, I don't believe most of that's true. Some There can be incremental opportunities. Of course, you don't want to ignore those. But you really need to look in the mirror and really determine whether or not are you executing at the highest level in your core business? And so that's really, you know, when you ask the question, like, what does focus mean? It's being able to turn off the noise, turn off the distractions, and really put your time and attention on the things that you know to be the most important. And that can be hard at times, but that has served me well. I've watched other people over the years who have more discipline and real strong focus. And I've just been you know, I, mean, I admire that. And so that was just something that me and my team decided that we needed as a group. Yeah, it's, it's being able to say no really quickly to things. Yes. No, knowing how to get to a no and, and what you said on, on, I thought you said it perfectly, that it's, it's the idea that people think that because their core business isn't operating how they want, yeah. that it must be because they're not doing something else yeah. rather than they're not doing what they should be doing great. Yes. <laughs> it's an easy out for a person. It is. You know, oh, well, we need to get into the rental business. Everybody else is doing better. Or the e-commerce for our specific industry. These are like little areas that we kind of got, yep. you know, we need to get into the insurance business. So like we need that part of it. It's like, well, here's the KPIs of your business. And if you're not running, you know, again, in the top 5%, 
then, you know, and if you have half of those metrics being met, well, then work on the other half first. And then you, again, I always look at things as, have you earned the, the right or the opportunity to go do these other things? Mm-hmm. You know, you said how we look at and talk about info. Is there anything, an example or something that you could say, look, prior to 2017, this is how we thought about it. But then post 17, this is what mattered. Like how, how did that happen? Yeah. So, so we committed to an EOS trainer, coach, whatever. And as a management team, we really took it very seriously. And we all were in full agreement that this is the direction and the path we're going down, right? And prior to that, we obviously had lots of information, lots of reporting and things like that. But it was so all over the place, like trying to just digest so much information that really you didn't benefit in any way. The things that you were looking at and talking about in the first hour of a meeting by, you know, by the eighth hour, you have forgotten about. It was just overload. We were trying to do like monthly and quarterly type meetings. Our meeting structure and cadence was just not nearly as consistent as it needed to be, right? So we hired this coach, you know, and when someone puts, when I make an agreement with myself, when I make an agreement with my team to that these are how we're going to operate, I don't veer from that. I don't say, okay, you know, some people just like, okay, yeah, we have this meeting, no phones allowed. It starts at 9 a.m. and ends at 1130. It's every Tuesday, period, end of story. You don't miss it for any reason outside of like, you know, a, a serious personal issue, right? You do everything you can in your power to protect that time and then how you utilize that time. And so we were introduced to level 10 meetings, right? And we were introduced to a specific scorecard. We worked together as a team to identify what are the things we're going to measure in this time period. And we followed that system from the day we started in 2017. We followed that system up until 90 days ago, which we'll get into and why we're not following that at this point. But it was game changing for us. So we narrowed down the information. You know, you have you have accountability every week to your peers on what it is you're saying you're doing. And those weekly expectations were also broke down into, you know, monthly and quarterly expectations that then really kind of drove to the total company's year goals. And and you said it. And I think a lot of people that listen to this know about EOS or have have heard about it or maybe they're they're at a company that does it, but it takes obviously full buy-in from you. Yes. But if the whole leadership team is not bought in on this, it's impossible to let it feed into the organization. That's right. And I will just say I'm so fortunate that every person on my leadership team had was just they embraced it and lived it yep. to its core. There's no doubt about it. And it was game changing for us. It it was game changing for the business and how we did things, how we operated. And then the outcomes, the success of the, you know, how we were operating. I mean, we really grew and improved over the last three or four years. Wasn't it also game changing for how y'all communicated with each other? Y'all had tough conversations. It was a place where everybody felt comfortable, you know, saying no. Yes, it was gloves off. And if everybody didn't, you know, the one thing like, you have to become very vulnerable, right? As a CEO, I'm, I'm the decision maker and this and that. People are careful about what they say, you know, if they think that I'm not going to like it or disagree. And maybe they'll disagree to a point, but you can see when people like, you know, clearly kind of back off or, or don't really go all in. Yep. This gave a, a safe space for my entire management team to know that they could challenge me, that they could as a team, you know, 
be comfortable that whatever happened in that room in that meeting, you know, the minute it was over, it was it was done. We were back to working. They were very respectful. It's a respectful process. But yeah, to your point, it gives people a space to be able to to disagree, to to make sure that we're all on the same page, et cetera. If you were to start another business one day or do something, is EOS going to follow you wherever yeah, you go? Absolutely yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah. I mean, I was just with one of my uh, directors who I've worked with for 15 years, uh, known for 20 years. And this dude, and God, I love him. And when he listens <laughs> to this, it's not a bad, it's not a dig. This guy's so ADD and he's just kind of like, you know, you, you could see him in some of these meetings. He wasn't specifically on the leadership team meeting, but he was in his own D10, like our L10 meeting. And the other day, since we've dismantled these meetings within my organization, he told me the other day, he said, man, I miss these D10s so badly. Like we are, you know, probably a little bit loss of direction right now as a result of changes that are happening. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know we'll get into obviously, but, but yeah, so it, it's mission critical, the process, the information, how, how the system works if you follow it fully. Yep. All right. So COVID hits, if anybody's listened to other episodes, they, they've heard about how I handled the first few weeks went from Real estate's the greatest thing ever to Johnny's sitting here laughing. He had to sit here with me for days and just hear me whine and cry. <laughs> but we went from, you know, greatest real estate ever to don't pay your landlord. So I remember we all had a meeting, but Power Sports, I'll, I'll spoil it, did better than anybody could have ever believed. It was one of the winners, if there was ever a winner. And, and it may have reshaped the industry forever, how people thought about the outdoors and the products they're going to use. So COVID hits, kind of what happens in the business? Yeah, so COVID hits, you know, our business, our industry generally does not do well in any type of economic turmoil. So, you, you know, recession, downturn 2008, you know, you know, when 9-11 happened, you know, we are a want, not a need, right? So, you know, people need to pay rent, they need to pay their bills and when times are hard, they don't pay for toys. They don't go buy, you know, big expensive toys. So, so my experience is that, you know, when, when COVID came on and we didn't know anything about it, but it just felt like the world was coming to an end. Mm. I was 100% confident that my world was about to get rocked in a way like no other. I thought, you know, I mean, just so just, you know, to be real clear, we we immediately sat down as a management team. We used the EOS process. We extended the, you know, the way the the program works the, of like, OK, 90 minutes isn't going to be enough. We're going to meet for, you know, 10 hours a day every day until we know what's going on. But we we let go of 50 people like March 17th, the very early onslaught of covid you know, we parted ways with 50 people and we were one of the organizations that said not a single check leaves this office, not one check without my signature and my approval other than payroll, not rent, not a bill to the manufacturers, not a utility, not a tax, nothing. Zero checks besides payroll leaves this building. We let go of 50 people. We had another 50 people identified that was going to go next. And it was painful. I mean, I cried like a baby when I stood up in front of the 50 and had to let them go. I didn't sleep at night. It was it was a very, very stressful. It's awful. It was awful. Everything that you hear about or read about and think, you know, the worst is happening around you. That was it was happening. It wasn't like a 
This was not a drill. This was not a fire drill. This was really happening. And so we started meeting as a leadership team every day. We met for 90 minutes in the morning and 90 minutes in the afternoon. Everybody had their marching orders. The CFO was responsible for lenders and you know, leases and all the different stuff in his area. My op- COO was responsible for operationally, controller for cash conservation, just like all these things. My marketing director, I mean, she was peeling back every spend we had. At that time, we started to learn about the PPP programs and the SDIL. So, you know, we were having to then now manage that and apply for these things and having conversations with floor plan lenders, with manufacturers on inventory, et cetera. So we were in real freak out mode. We we did meet every day for 90 minutes at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And we did that for about a month. And what would you talk about? And like, we talk about where are we at in the process of PPP? Where are we at with this lender? Where are we at with this manufacturer? Where are we at with this inventory? What's going on with this store? How many people are working? You know, how many more people can we let go of? What things do we not need? What marketing have we shut off? You know, it was just a full court press on in every area. I mean, we had an Excel spreadsheet that grew to about 20, I think it was 23 or 24 tabs. And the information in every one of those tabs were mission critical in that segment of the business. And we went through everything in that tab and whoever was responsible for it in that 90 minute period. And then at the end of the day, we said, what progress? Because, you know, everybody, we, we people generally tend to forget things pretty quickly, right? But if you go back to that time period, most people were saying it's changing minute by minute, yep. not day by day, not hour by hour. It's changing minute by minute. And so it didn't seem silly at 90 minutes at the end of the day, going into everybody's dinner and time with their family, that was out the window. You know, we were having those conversations from six o'clock at night till 7.30 or eight. And so we were we were just going through every one of those tabs and, and it was like, what's changed? What's the update since this morning on these things? And guess what? There was lots of changes. It was like, and then it's like, okay, well, you go to bed and then you wake up at 9 a.m. and you're going to start that conversation again and go back through that top tab. Seems silly. No, there was hundreds of emails and texts and all sorts of things coming in during that time. You know, we were real fortunate. We fought and used, I wouldn't call it a loophole, but we used every advantage we could to not have to close our doors. We only had one dealership shut down for one day at the very beginning of COVID. And it was in a county and a city that we, that, they were being a little bit more strict. They weren't sure of who qualified as, what do you call it? Essential. Uh, essential. We qualified as essential. We service, you know, farm, ranch, police, fire, all that stuff. And and we're in transportation. People use these things as legitimate transportation. So we were able to stay open, which was, you know, great. But it was also a scary time trying to figure out, okay, what's, so in that tab, it was protocols from HR. Like, I mean, it was like, we got to put up plastic shielding. We got de- we got to separate desk. One customer at a time can come in. So anyway, we were managing all the way through that, right? Well, we watched March fall off a cliff for us from a revenue standpoint. We had made all these like really hard decisions. And then we watched everything coming to a, just, it was literally falling off a cliff. And it's just one of those moments in time where you're literally just sitting there looking around going, what is going on? I'm never going to recover from this. It's really how it felt. And your whole team, you yes. got to take care of. Yes. You've been building this business for X amount of years and you're looking at it going, it's all gone in the stream of a moment. Yep. You're, you've got all these people you have to take care of and their family. I mean, 
the gravity of the moment is so I can't even describe the feelings that I had. Yeah. And so when when I'm talk when I'm talking to entrepreneurs and they've earned it and they and people say, Oh, entrepreneurs earn too much or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. You just never know until you're in the arena. Yeah. My personal guarantee was on about seventy million dollars oh, at that point. God. So all, really more than that. It was probably closer to a hundred. I mean, all the floor plans for 14 locations, 50 million bucks, all the real estate, you know, every credit card terminal, every forklift God. lease. I mean, I, the, the, the beauty of it was it wasn't like something like, man, I'll work my way out of this. It was like, fuck it. You know, <laughs> if it, if it literally hits the fan to the point where I can't do anything, you know, you know, you want to try to work yourself you want to work your way through and out of a situation. But when I'm, when I was facing what I was facing, I was just like, I mean, it's just over, <laughs> it's just over. And I don't know if you, if anybody's ever had that feeling, but it is a real feeling and it is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you that literally I got to the point where when I would get a text message, yeah, like laying in my bed, get sick. Dude, I get my nerves. I didn't want to pick. I didn't want to read it. My body shut down. I mean, I literally at one point pretty early on, you know, sounds silly, but just to to really describe how how scary it was and and all the stuff going on is, you know, I, I mean, I went to my doctor. I'm like, man, I think there's something wrong with me. I mean, I really truly, I'm like, I want to get blood work, body scan. He's like, dude, we'll do all that. But this is stress. Yep. And you know what? He was right. You know, yeah. thank God. I mean, there was nothing wrong with me, but I really felt like in my mind because I, I, you, I couldn't sleep. My nerves were shot. I just felt really pretty. Yeah, you know, I was rocked by it. Defeated. But yeah. All right. So March ends. Mm -hmm. You fell off a cliff. Numbers are plummeting. Yep. World's falling apart. Now we're at in April. So we're in April. We start to see traffic lightly coming back. Uh, we start to hear the phones start to ring off the wall. We're like, okay, we've shut off every <laughs> marketing outlet. We've literally shut off every marketing outlet and the phones are ringing like crazy. And, you know, it starts to become clear that, well, people are bored. They're locked up inside. You know, March has passed. Kids are now out of school. They've, you know, they're now doing remote learning. People are like all the those early on things started to happen and people were like, Hey, I you know, we need some jet skis. You know, there's nothing to do. We can't travel. We can't go to dinner. We can't go to a sporting event. We can't go to a concert. You know, we want a four wheeler. We want our kids to be outside. We want to, we're going to, you know, we just bought a camper and we want to, you know, take some four wheelers with us and we're going to go this whole new thing. We're like, okay, well, this is, that's, that's cool. Whatever. That's kind of crazy. And then so April was, I would say, okay. It was still behind previous year. It was behind budget but it was a lot better than March. And then May happened. Dude, I remember this. Dude, it, it was the biggest, I mean, it was like we did all of March, April, and May in the middle of May. I just couldn't understand it. I would look at that, we would look at our, our doc that like updates, you know, what's happening every day in every store, looking at the numbers. Dude, it was like watching um, like a broken clock. Just, ah, it was like sell, 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 revenue, 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 revenue. And then it was like, we're like calling like, like from a, from a help desk, like, Hey, raise the margin. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, this, we're not in a giveaway inventory mode. Like, dude, we got to raise the margins. So, and we didn't want to do it in a way of taking advantage, but I will just say this, our industry historically 
is just littered with like dis, d- deep discount dealers, gives it away. You know, you're fighting the mom and pop shop. You're fighting the, the manufacturers who's overloading you with inventory. So there was a clear supply and demand happening, change, shift in, our, in the landscape. And we wanted to maximize the opportunity. And one of the reasons for that also was we didn't know how long it was going to last. We're like, well, this isn't going to last forever. So we want to try to be as, you know, take as much of, of the opportunities we could. Yeah. Yeah. So, so May happened as <laughs> just, and we were just blown away. And then June rolls around, dude, and it beats May. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm hiring back all 50 people. We're now hiring new people. The rules of COVID were right out the window, dude. Yeah. Like we had more sales desks crammed together. We didn't, you know, we, the doors were wide open. We were supposed to have appointments and one person come in. We were like, everybody come in. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it was wild. And right. And so then. Dirt bike for you. Dirt bike and you for were you. all getting a dirt bike. Grandma's <laughs> getting a side by side. So it, it was just crazy. But in the back of my mind, you know, I'm like, this isn't going to last. And, and how long is COVID going to last? And this and that. So we were like, it's a bubble. It's a window. And we need to take advantage of the opportunity as best as we possibly can. We need to maximize everything we can. We're feeling pretty good. Dude, it just rolled on through the end of the year. It, our balance sheet changed forever. It from, Mar- from April of 2020 to December 31st, our balance sheet changed forever. I mean, the, the levels of demand, the zero marketing expense, zero floor plan expense, which I know... You had Will Churchill on talking about auto industry and him and I share similar similar business where all that inventory sitting on the lot isn't sitting there for free. We don't own it. I mean, it's it's a very, it's behind payroll. It's the second largest expense that we have. Well, it was zero. The manufacturers gave a ton of relief. Inventory wasn't staying on the lot, you know, but we, we were, we went from, we went from month supplies to day supplies. And so all these changes, it wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just the demand and the margin. It was the floor plan interest. It was all of the manufacturers not, they reacted very quickly too, right? So they were giving relief. So we got a tremendous amount of relief. And on top of that, we just benefited in almost every line item of our P&L. It was incredible. Okay, so that gets us through 2020. Yeah. I will just, before we move on, is there anything you learned in the early months, mm-hmm. March, April, we'll call it there. I know I have answers to this that I'll for but if I had to say, what are the lessons you took from that that'll serve you well the rest of your life? Well, the lessons that I learned as a leader, as a leader, well, we moved very quickly. And I think you saw this. I was like, you know, I think that we move faster than most of the people I consider friends and colleagues and peers, people that I respect respect a great deal. I went straight into COVID reaction, you know, re, you know, how we're COVID response mode yep. very, very quickly, right? And then I would say the second thing that I'm most proud of is I was very direct and clear to my immediate management team and then expanded that to the entire organization. I did not let, you know, I'm very much a delegator. I do not try to micromanage and go get into all the everybody's business. But in that moment, every person in my organization needed to hear directly from me. Every one of the lenders, every one of my relationships, they needed to hear directly from me every single day. 
And, you know, I made that time and commitment. And I will just say that I can hold my head high, even for the things that were discouraging or the hard news and all the things that early on that didn't feel good. It came directly from me. And I think that people could see and they respected the emotion and the concern that it was very real. This was not just them. This was us as a as an organization that were facing really challenging times. And so I was proud of that. And I will say, just again, being very organized, very organized. We were not shooting from the hip. We weren't like, you know, who's doing what. It, we were just so concise yep. and so clear on the direction. And and there was just high levels of accountability. And we just did the, you know, I, I, I'm very proud of, we just, I felt like, I feel like that we were doing the right thing at every, you know, every opportunity, every thing that came our way, we just, we handled it immediately. So procrastination, you know, we all procrastinate and people who say they don't, you know, for the most part, they, that's not true. People procrastinate. There was zero procrastination. Like when there was something that had to get done, that was just, you know, attacked it immediately. The years we had gotten to know each other, I think one of the conversations we would have frequently or not frequently, but on and off throughout the years is like, how are you going to sell this thing? Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of power sports dealers that sell. You're just acquiring. So we get into 2021 and we don't have to go through month by month, but we'll kick it off to the second half of the year. Let's start talking into you sold to a public company rumble on. So now that's the end of the story. Now let's get back to the beginning of the story. When did you start saying, okay, I think one, like I want to sell the business, but two, we have a place to sell it to. Like what what was going on? Yeah. So actually it that wasn't the case that I started to think about selling the business. What I what I thought after 2020, the first thing I did was I I very gen generously bonused and shared in the just the overall win with the entire team. I mean, and I mean everybody in the organization all the way down to the person that started in the middle of the year that was sweeping floors, they got a bonus relative to what they did and yeah. how long they'd been there. Every person benefited from the success that we had seen. And I was very grateful for, you know, people not knowing about what this virus is and means and, you know, they're taking it home to their families. You know, there was people who, you know, so many people who stepped up. So anyway, you know, that was kind of my first thing is I want to take care of the people. And then what I started to think about about the business was, you know, I, I had private equity investors, as you know, and so my capital structure was, I will just call, it was very wound tight, right? We didn't have a lot of room for a miss. And so I had this tranche of preferred equity that needed to get paid back before I could really make great movement with the business, getting the balance sheet healthy, get more of a traditional lending source, things like that. The cost of capital to me was was very expensive, right? Well, this just in 2020, the amount of cash that we generated and the amount of and the distributions that went to me personally, I started to see an opportunity to take out my private equity investors. That's that was really what I was looking for was I just want to take them out and I want to clean up the capital structure and this can be a great cash flow business for me personally for a very long time because I did not see an actual buyer for this business because of the things you said. The industry is kind of small. There's not a lot of buyer. We were the big fish in a small pond. So I didn't really see an exit 
uh, per se. What I saw was an opportunity for me to really own and control more of the, the business yeah. and really clean up the capital structure. So we had generated a ton of cash and everybody was like, what do we want to do? I'm like, we're paying off preferred, like period. And even the investors and boards were like, they were like, ah, maybe not. We don't want to come on. Why don't you do other things with the money? I'm like, absolutely not. Like we are going to pay down. We're going to get our balance sheet at the, into the in order. Right. And so that's what we did. That felt incredibly good. I started having conversations with my partner who was the chairman of the board and, you know, he owned the private equity firm that invested, but him and I were our friends. And I saw a path to him, myself, and some of my management team really buying the business from the investors and it being a great outcome for them. Do it at a fair price, et cetera. Well, 2021, again, not going month by month, but 2021 was not only a repeat of 2020, it was a better version of it. I mean, it was, it made 2020 look small. I Grandma mean, was getting a side-by-side dude, and a dirt bike. Yeah. I, and all the accessories. I mean, I don't even know how to explain it. We were going and we were driving out of state, <laughs> buying inventory from dealers who were still scared at retail and bringing it back here and selling it. I mean, yeah. so... Anyway, so 2021, it was just another repeat. We got ourselves into a position that I never imagined. I was doing mid-year bonuses to the team at that point, quarterly bonuses. The investors were starting to take distributions. And so I started to build a plan of what it would be like to try to buy this, buy more. I was the largest individual owner of Freedom, yeah, but I didn't have control, okay? And so I wanted to you know, have control, and I thought this was just going to be a great revenue business. I started when I bought my first dealership, it was about 12 million in revenue. We grew that prior to COVID to just under 200, you know, so it was already a a great business to me. And I loved waking up every day going to that business. And I was working with people that I really just admired and had a great time working with. So, so I wasn't necessarily like thinking too much about, I have to have this big exit. What had happened over the last two years, what transpired, gave me some liquidity cushion. It gave me some confidence in where we were at. You know, I just, again, got the balance sheet in order. And I was able just to take a deep breath and go, you know what? I can do this for another 10 years as a great cash flow business, continue to grow slowly, start doing some acquisitions again, et cetera. So that was really where my mind was. There, this group Rumble On, they were in the technology space in power sports. They didn't have brick and mortar locations. They were they were buying and selling pre-owned vehicles only. Very dominant in the on-road motorcycle space. Very dominant in the Harley Davidson category, etc. So I had a great relationship with them. Had known them over the, uh, about a five-year period, but just you know, just in passing, we we didn't. You know, we didn't talk a lot, but the CEO and I, we we had got to know each other and built a friendship and stayed in touch a few times a year. So as inventory was starting to deplete and manufacturers were having a hard time delivering inventory, as we all know, the supply chain got totally screwed up. So we went from having way too much inventory to no one could get inventory. So I I called him one day out of nowhere and just said, hey, you know, wanted to check in with you guys, see how y'all are doing through COVID and, you know, things have been well for us. How is y'all's business? How's y'all's you know, kind of strategy going. And he says, going great. And I said, well, I, I wanted to buy inventory. You know, I knew they had a large amount of inventory coming in and out. So I, I, I called, reached out to him to see if he had inventory that we could buy. Right. And he's like, yeah, we do. We have inventory. We're happy to sell it to you, this and that. 
He said, but I really have something else I've been working on. I want to talk to you about it. He's like, I can't believe you called me because I'm literally was about to call you in the next two days. He's like, there's going to be an announcement in 24 hours. And when you hear about it, I want you to call me. I said, okay, sounds good. <laughs> so I didn't know what that meant. You know, I had no clue what that meant. I mean, I didn't, couldn't even, I had no idea. So as I mentioned earlier, we were the second largest dealership group in the U.S., in power sports. The first largest was out of Arizona. It's a big group called Ride Now. They had 45 or so locations. Guy started it back in like 89, grew it into a, you know, almost a billion dollar a year revenue business, right? A private owner, very, thank you, Johnny. Private owner, very, he's very guarded. The guy who owned it was very guarded. He wasn't the kind of guy that shared a lot of information. I never could have imagined him selling it, right? He had kids in the business in management position. So it just never seemed like even a real thing. Well, I get a, I get here the announcement that Rumble On, this technology group out of, you know, on online platform out of Irving is buying right now. And I was absolutely shocked by that. Thought it was really cool. Thought it was great for the industry. It was just unique to hear and see. And so I called the, the guy the next day, said, hey, you know, congratulations. What is it you want to talk to me about? And he said, well, you were really our first target. We wanted to buy you guys. But some things came up, conversations happened. We got in alignment with these guys over here and we bought them and, you know, we want to buy you. And so I was just like, okay, well, I mean, one thing about a public company, right? I mean, you see under the skirt, I mean, everything. There's no hiding information or numbers. You know, everything is, is public information. And so I was able to see, you know, what the transaction, how it was structured. I was able to see kind of the multiple. I was kind of, I was able to, you know, really understand exactly what went on in that deal. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like a black box. Yeah, it wasn't a black box. So, and so what I told him was, I said, look, this is a very difficult process to go through all the manufacturer approvals and the floor plan approvals and y'all have announced it, but it's not closed, right? This is like, you got three or four months before you're going to close. I said, when y'all get closed, Let's continue conversation. Why don't you just digest this and then I'll think about it and we'll go from there. And what, when was this in 2020? Was this like April? May? No, no, this was like September of okay. 2021. September. So it's pretty late in September. I mean, you know, I think it may have been at the end of August that he kind of indicated that maybe September, something like that. Well, let me take that back. Probably closer to May is or something like that when the they made the announcement. But I did not take it serious. I did not talk to my team. I did not even consider that we were like now in some sort of potential negotiation. It was more like September or so when they closed on that, that we re-engaged. It was after they closed, we re-engaged. And then from that point on, it became very real. Like, I mean, you know, it was just like, okay, this is clear. You guys got the lending behind you. You got, you got this deal over the goal line. You got the support of the manufacturers. So yeah, I mean, I want to, I want to, explore this further so so may happens you just continue continue operating but obviously it's probably starting to you're thinking about it yeah yeah deal closes funding secured yep so did you pick up the phone and call them and say congrats all right let's chat or how yeah did... yeah so the 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 minute the announcement was made that it was done money's transfer this is the new ownership i i called and said hey what's going oh well, so I, I called actually said hey what's going on and a terrible turn of events happened like 30 days or 45 days prior to close, which could have potentially blown up the original deal that they had. 
the CFO, who is an incredible businessman, he, his name is Steve Berard. He was the CFO for Wayne Hazinga, who owned Waste Management Company. He owned uh, like movie studios and I mean, football teams or so. I don't know what all, but you know, a multi-billion dollar entrepreneur. This guy was like in his early 20s when he started, worked side by side with him for 30 something years. So an incredible deal guy. He's the one who put this whole deal together. He passed away like 45 days before they closed on that transaction. That created a lot of, you know, doubt within closing of that. So then when I reached out, he said, man, we we have a lot that we have to work through since Steve's passing. I said, okay, well, you just let me know. You know, I'll just kind of sit on the sidelines and if, if there's an opportunity, let me know. And then he called me a couple of weeks later and said, look, we got all the things resolved that we needed to with our lenders and then, you know, with his, you know, his interest in the company and and family and all those types of things. And he said, we want, I want to jump back into the conversations with you. And so, you know, conversations started happening pretty much daily. We kind of, I had a number, I had kind of a, this is what we want to make the deal work. I had talked about it with my board. My board was very supportive of me leading the charge throughout the entire thing from the negotiations to what the, what the, what the valuation was and, the, and how we were going to structure the deal, et cetera. And so I just kind of led that charge and we actually got to a point where he really said, Hey, you know, we'd love to do this, but we can't get to where you want to be. And so we're going to have to pass. And I said, you know, I totally understand that. We're just going to keep heads down in what we're doing. And then I, I think he called me like an hour and a half later and was like, Hey, we, we want to do it. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I, that's, here we go. All right. So you guys have made a theoretical agreement. Let's talk about, well, we can talk about what happened from there to close, but let's just maybe back up a little bit. In hindsight, Mm -hmm. what are the things that you had done right for the company that in hindsight, you're like, man, I'm really glad we did this, whether it was selling to a public or really selling to anybody. And then we'll follow that up with like, what are the things post-transaction you kind of look back and you're like, man, I wish we had done this, or I wish I had negotiated this, or just what are things that you wish you had done? Yeah. So the things that I look back at and go, wow, this really set us up for success for really a pretty fast closing on this size of a transaction. And as complicated as it is, is early on, I was really pushed by my, excuse me, my board to hire a CFO, you know, a a really strong experienced candidate, someone who'd worked in private equity, worked in public, worked in just privately owned businesses, you know, of size, things of that nature. And I really gave a lot of pushback because I didn't think I could afford one, didn't know where their value was going to be. I had a rockstar controller and rockstar accounting team. And I'm just like, I don't want to put this other layer on. And then, you know, a lot of CFOs and me, our personalities probably just don't work. You know, I was worried about someone coming in and just kind of maybe changing the dynamic or the culture of what our leadership team looked like and felt like. And so I was resistant to it. Well, I got a lot of pressure put on me to to do something about it. And so I finally agreed that that's what I would do. And so I was really kind of looking for maybe an interim or a temporary CFO. I was starting to interview multiple people who were all very well qualified. But what I was looking for was, you know, skill set, yes, and experience of all of that stuff. But I was looking for a cultural fit, someone that I could work with that I could call like, this is someone I'm going to be tied to every day in and day out. And I wanted alignment there. And so I found, you know, the right guy and we ended up bringing him on. Uh, that was probably like 2016, mid 2016. 
And I will just tell you that the the impact that he made from day one to the day of the sell, I mean, I couldn't have done it without him. Okay, why? Just he, I mean, his understanding of contracts, his understanding of financial statements, his understanding of, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, sophisticated corporate attorneys and deal junkies on the other side, and you have someone who is, you know, literally reading word for word definitions and, you know, reps and warranties and thinking, he was thinking about the company's best interest. He was thinking about the investor's best interest. And I will tell you, he put my best interest at the forefront of what he did every single day. When he woke up and went to work every single day during this transaction, and even prior, he was always thinking about what is in my best interest, trying to protect me from risk and liability and things of that nature. And so the amount of modeling and data and the organization of all those things in a transaction like this is just overwhelming. And, you know, my controller is an absolute rock star, my COO, marketing, accounting folks, whoever. No one, including myself, had the skill set to do what he did from the very early on. And there was probably days, you know, in the early part of it, and you know, for years where he was managing reporting, managing board of directors, managing certain things, and it didn't feel like he was probably overwhelmed with work. But I will tell you that the day that this transaction started until the day that it closed, and, and even up, even after the close, he probably worked 70 hours a week. Can you go just a little deeper? And you kind of said what he did, but and then you also had mentioned earlier that the board gave you approval to like run the transaction, but I've never sold my company how did you guys delegate duties? Like, what were you doing? Mm-hmm. Were you receiving information, giving it to him, waiting to hear back? And that, were you playing middleman or like, how no. did you look at y'all's duties throughout that? Yeah. So what happened was my, I was working directly with the CEO and chairman of Rumble On. We had a good relationship, a very friendly and respectful relationship. And him and I, I will say, operate very much the same way. We don't nickel and dime. We don't try to over negotiate there. Neither one of us like gotchas. So it became very clear that like when I said this is the price we were asking and they were going to take a pass, we weren't over negotiating or trying to like, you know, just be, you know, gross about what we were asking. I mean, it was just on the it was on the it was on the full side of a deal. That's all it was. And they had to really digest it and think about it. But him and I really were having conversations and pretty quickly got to what we both thought looked like in concept a fair deal. And once that happened, he turned over the next steps to his legal and and finance people. And I turned it over to them. I said, look, this his here's the points of the strike. Here's what we're trying to get to. Now we just have all this due diligence that has to happen. And so you know, I turned that over to him and let him be in charge of running that program. He would come to me and tell me what the needs were, what the frustrations or the roadblocks were. And then when things would come up that were concerns or frustrations or roadblocks or misunderstandings or whatever, I would immediately get on the phone with the CEO, say, hey, we got this issue. We need to work through this issue. And he would work through that very quickly. I mean, we came to resolutions, you know, when we had a a, a disagreement or a discrepancy in networking capital adjustments. We got over that in an under a five minute conversation. This is our position. This is your position. Let's just meet somewhere in the middle that's fair. So we did that. I, I just kind of worked that part of the process, which was 
the deal, the structure, et cetera, and then delegated out everything else. How come every business that's ever sold it all boils down to networking capital? Why, <laughs> why is it always such a, I've never heard of a transaction where it's like, yep, both parties agree. Yeah, well, because, you know, this goes back to, I, I will start with the, the other point that I say, I will say that I'm really in hindsight that we did well and I'm proud of that didn't feel good at the time is at the very beginning of this, the board wanted me to have an outside audit, you know, and I didn't understand the value. All I saw was the, <laughs> here's the proposal, you know, it's like $120,000. And, you know, that was when we were small and I'm just like, we can't afford this, you know? And, and, and also I'm a guy of, of great ethic, right? Like, so we don't do shady stuff. So I'm like, I don't understand why we need to be audited because there's nothing weird going on, but but it was important to the board and it was a direction, it was a directive from the board. So, so we did. And then every year, you know, those audits are miserable. My controller every year during audit season was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. I'm like, well, please don't quit. We're going to get through this. And it forced us to learn every year about how to manage inventory better, how to manage account, accounts payable, receivable cash. I mean, you know, all these things, CapEx spending. I mean, it, it really truly did bring education to us every year. We're like, we have to be better in these areas. There's scrutiny on us because of the audit. It's surfacing these things. And so it forced us to get better. But when you go into a sell process and they start requesting due diligence documents and you can get it to them within minutes, not days or hours, it's not piecemealed together. It's very organized. It's very clean. And it's an outside external audit. I mean, we switched audit companies midway through the growth of freedom, just to, again, say, you know, there's a separation of audit and management. Yep. And so that made us very attractive to them. The prior group was not audited. So I will say that's an important part. So when it gets to the, there's this big discrepancy, no one ever agrees on working capital. Generally, it's because if you don't have an audit, you know, a seller is representing something and they may not be representing something that they believe to be wrong or false or a lie or being dishonest, but in their heart, they believe, yeah, my inventory is worth this. Or I, I would, you know, you hear people all the time, I'll guarantee you my inventory is clean. It's like, okay, well, we're going to do an inventory <laughs> and half of it's not there yeah. because people are lazy. I mean, that is just a fact. I don't, th that's one thing I've learned. And I see, you know, people have these grand ideas and they, what they think is happening, but if they're not in their accountant inventory and have a great dialed in detailed process, whatever, you know, inventory, it's like, well, you know, there's just so many different nuances to working capital. It's not just the cash in the bank. It's the inventory. It's the receivables, the payables, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of room. Everybody wants to believe that, oh, it's it's this. And then when you have a seller of any sophistication that's going to do the proper steps to ensure that what you're representing is right, there's usually a discrepancy. And so that is why having really disciplined processes within the business regularly is really important when you get to a point where you could sell. It's kind of a weird question, but I've always admired this about you. You know, you started by sweeping floors and now we're sitting here talking about networking capital adjustments. Yeah. You didn't, you, I don't think you went to college, did you? I did not go to college. So you didn't take accounting. You, who taught you that this was important? Like, at what point did you go on, did you ask somebody, like, teach me about networking capital or like, B, 
because one thing that's always consistent with you and and your updates and YPO and just conversations is you know your financials so well. Mm -hmm. How did that become a priority and how did you get good at understanding it and making that a priority? Like, did you just evolve? Did somebody along the way say, hey, buddy, like, you got to figure this shit out? Like, what happened? So it's a combination of several years. And I will tell you that it's something that I really enjoy more than most people would think because I am very entrepreneurial. I don't like to sit still, but dude, I love financials. Really? I love to understand them. I love the story that they tell. I love to know that things are real, right? To ask questions and things of that nature. So yeah, my CFO jokes all the time and he's like, Dude, you're you should be the CFO. I was gonna say you kind of have a little CFO in yeah, it, which is not. I mean, I can't even. I couldn't make a freaking Excel spreadsheet to say, please save me. You know, <laughs> I, I just I can't even open up Excel or any of that stuff. But I do know the numbers. I understand the importance of the numbers. But to answer your question, what happened was I was you know so just to kind of very quickly go from sweeping floors to working in the back of a shop to working in a parts department to working in sales and then to becoming a quote unquote, manager of the dealership in a, like a four or five year period of time. I didn't know anything about a PL. I didn't know anything about a balance sheet. I didn't know about working cap, networking capital, it, and none, none of that, right? I was just selling things and trying to provide good customer service. Well, the dealership sold from the guy that I was working for to what I will call a more sophisticated owner. Not sophisticated, but a more sophisticated owner. And he was an owner that was an absentee owner. And when he hired me to take over as general manager, he asked me, he said, do you know how to read a P&L? You know, and I said, well, not really. And he said, okay, well, I want you to work with my controller and she's going to kind of start to teach you because, you know, he, he actually told me, he said, your pay plan used to be this. Now it's this. And I got paid on net. That's how I got paid. He's like, do you know how you get paid? And I said, not really. You know, (laughs) do you know the levers that you have? Like, if I want to know how I'm getting paid, I better start to figure out all these things within the P&L. And so, so that was kind of the earliest like introduction. And that was probably in like 2010 ish, something like that, you know? And so I started learning what that was and I started looking at it every single day. And then I went from taking, you know, running one store to six stores. Okay. So I had six P&Ls that I was looking at all very different. And then I went into what's called a 20 group business management training facility. They very much focused on kind of the, the income statement and how that, what control we had over that to improve the business. So I was kind of exposed to that for a while. Right. But it was still just a very high level understanding of the PL. When I went to go buy the business, you know, the SBA, my lenders, investors, everybody was asking me lots of questions about the income statements, the balance sheets, the inventory, the this, that, the networking capital, how we how I how I thought about it. And so I had to start studying. I had to start going online, reading and understanding and asking questions. There wasn't a single person that ever really like forced me or, or, or sat down with me, I, was, I should say, and like educated me. I just kind of kept learning. Well, you know, once I bought the business and we started growing at the rate that we did, and I'm sitting in rooms with lenders and, and the floor plan lenders, and you have bank, you know, covenants that you have to meet and you have budget that, you know, you can't just go in and say like, I'm going to spend a hundred thousand dollars in CapEx this year and spend 200, right? I mean, and so it was just just over time that I just kept 
learning it to the point where now I feel like I can read an income statement, balance sheet, set of financials, whatever from any industry, any business, ask a few questions and get a really good idea. And I also know how to go and audit and inspect. So, you know, let's say something, a number doesn't feel right in the income statement or in the balance sheet. I know where to go and look to go try to to reconcile that. Can you give an example? Well, let's just say all of a sudden a receivable number just jumped up, right? And yeah. that that changes things. It changes what's the cash, you know, cash in the bank, like a PL can say you made it like there's lots of PLs that say, you know, a guy's making a million dollars a year, right? Yeah. Then you go look at the balance sheet and it's like, well, you got no money in the bank. You're you're literally about to go out of out of business. Uh, you hear it on like shark shows like Shark Tank all the time. Like inventory consumes cash, right? So this PL, it only is like it is only one part of the story and it's really not that important. The balance sheet, the 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 cash flow statements, like a 20-week a, a cash flow statement, a balance sheet is way more interesting and tells way more of the truth of a business than a PL does. And so to go back and reconcile, I mean, things will just pop out. Like what what is the issue? Why does the why does the PL say we made a million dollars, but the the cash flow statement says that we're, you know, we're in in the red in the bank account, you know, week in and week out. What What is consuming that? Oh, it's inventories consuming that or it's prepaid this or whatever. I mean, you know, it's hard to just give like a specific yeah. example, but but yeah, I live and breathe by those financial documents and the integrity of them. Yep. Yeah. All right. You're glad you got an audit. You're glad you got a CFO. You're glad that you learned how to read financials. Anything else you look back on and say, man, I'm just so glad we did that heading into this. I would just say that the only other thing, and then, I, and then I'll leave it, let it rest, is, you know, treating people well, dude. I mean, that's the most thing I'm most proud of is, yeah. you know, those people that I consider my friends, they woke up and fought every day. I mean, I had lots of people come to me and say, look, if you need to cut my pay in half, if I have to come to work for free to get through this, I will. And so I just treating people well, not just in a time of need, not when you need something from them, but when you treat people well consistently over time and they have nothing really to give you, you know, that matters. And so I will say that for sure, the way that I treated people in my relationships, you know, that had the biggest impact long-term, way bigger of an impact than an audit or understanding financials, but how you treat people. Okay. Now the other side of the question, are there things you're like, man, we should have done that or we should have had this ready or, you know, probably one of the biggest regrets. I don't think there was anything we could have done to be more ready. And we prepared as it was happening very well. Like I said, I think we executed very, very well, but the inventory became a crisis for us as you know, we were nervous that we had too much inventory and then it went to not having enough inventory. Excuse me. And I think that we probably jumped the gun and got too aggressive too quick on shutting down inventory, you know, because we didn't know. I mean, inventory is like the killer. If you, you know, if demand was going to fall and inventory was already bloated, that was my one of my biggest fears was inventory growing and growing and growing. So we we shut it down hard. And even when we started to see relief, like in that April, May timeframe, I was still really nervous about taking on inventory at that point because I didn't think it was going to last. What I thought was we were getting a shot in the arm. 
This is the initial group of people who are like, we got nothing to do, want to go outside, and we're buying it. And so they did it all in that April, May, and then maybe June time frame. And it, there's no way July is coming and then August is coming and so it, where there's no way that's going to happen. And so I kept delaying and delaying like inventory acquisition, you know, and then at some point in like early 2021, I was just like gloves off. We're going to buy inventory from our competitors. We're going to buy used inventory. We're going to let the manufacturers know we're wide open. If anybody doesn't want inventory, bring it. So I wish I would have been ahead of that because to be honest, I mean, we could have we would have sold. We would have sold literally every piece of inventory we would have got in. Yep. Yeah. So we probably left, you know, twenty-five million dollars of revenue on the table easily in twenty twenty-one, just from not being aggressive enough. But it is what it is. All right. So you get to closing. You probably, you know, that anticipation of that wire going through is probably like going to bed when you're a kid on Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you like exactly what was going Let's on. Do it. So I never thought about it. Everybody kept asking me, man, like, what's going on? Are you are you nervous? Like, are you like thinking about this? I I can assure you, I swear to on my life, I did not think about what it would feel like or be like for it to to close and what the money transferring and it be done and what that would look like or feel like. I never thought about it. I just didn't want to think about it until it was done, until it was real, right? So leading up to to an actual closing, it got delayed by about 30 days. It was no big deal. It was it wasn't anybody's fault. It had to do with, you know, documents and contracts and all the all the other things. But I I remember getting an invitation that the new company was going to have a total company management meeting for the first time. They were taking this group right now's management team and our management team and they wanted to address the company as one for the first time. And they were asking me if I was comfortable with that because we had not closed. And I was like, I mean, that feels, I mean, I feel like we're going to close, but it it feels a little bit unsettling that I'm going to bring my entire management team and saying, hey, here's the keys to the kingdom. And it's not done, right? And so... Anyway, I agreed to it though. I said, you know, this it feels like this is going to happen, so I agreed to it. And as we were in the it was 2 days of meetings, and as we were in the meeting, as we were going into the meetings the day before, it became clear that there was going to be a rush to get this thing closed. And so as this meeting was going on, myself and the executive management team and others were all like in the back office documenting and signing paperwork to close the deal. Not everybody knew this. And so I go back into this management meeting where there's like a hundred people. I'm sitting in there just as one of the other people. And I get a text message from my CFO and he's like, dude, the deal's closed. And I'm like, he's like, paperwork's done. Everything's in your email. And I was like, okay, cool. And then about 45 minutes later, I get a text from my business partner. He's like, hey, dude, congratulations. I just got my wire. <laughs> and and I was like, sitting in this meeting, it's in the back room. And I pulled out my phone and pulled out my little banking app. And I checked. And I was like, damn, man, <laughs> that's crazy. And I just didn't say a word. You know, I just kind of looked at it and it felt very real. That night, they were going to have a celebration of the closing that it happened. Well, my children were at my parents' house. They were watching them for me. 
And my daughter, who was eight years old at the time, she's nine, you know, she loves my parents so much, but she loves to be with dad, right? She didn't want to stay the night there. I had asked if they could stay the night with my parents because I was going to go to this celebration. And my da- my daughter said, Daddy, you, sh- you can go to your celebration, but I want you to come back to grandma and grandpa's. I said, okay. <laughs> and so at the end of the deal, everybody was excited. Everybody was congratulating me and they were like wanting to go out and celebrate. But in that moment, I just felt like what was right for me was I just wanted to go home and be with my children. And I wanted to celebrate what was happening with the people that mattered most to me. That's so awesome. And so everybody was like, man, you're going to leave. You're not going to go to dinner, the steakhouse, do all this stuff. And I was like, no, I'm not. And so I drove to Weatherford, Texas uh, from Irving, you know, an hour drive, just letting everything kind of settle in. And I remember getting there and my daughter and my son were so happy that I came and I was starving. It was like 930 or 10 o'clock at night. And my, my mom cooked me, she made me some corn dogs, dude. And I'm sitting at my parents' kitchen table eating, you know, frozen corn dogs with my daughter. And I felt as happy and as content and exactly that that's where I was supposed to be. And things really hadn't settled in at that point. I'll tell you that night I went to bed at my parents' house, slept in the back room, (laughs) had just this huge (laughs) transaction. And I woke up the next morning and that was the first time in probably years that I felt at true peace. That's an incredible story. And it's probably not the one that everybody was, was thinking they're going to hear. And I think we can just expand on that a little bit. The, while you were having the highs of your business, mm-hmm. the best ever, you were also having some of the most, you were having a lot of trouble in things in your personal life. That's right. Yeah. And I, one thing I've always admired is, and I've learned a ton from it is parenting those kids. It doesn't matter if July was the greatest, if August was the greatest you would always come into YPO or when we would have lunch or we would chat and it was always being with the kids. Yeah. Why? You know, I, I don't know why I am the way I am, but I truly love being a dad and not in the sense that people may think like, like I I just love to go home and play dress up with my kids and stuff like that. I don't, I feel a very heavy, responsibility of doing well by my children, right? I, well, and what I enjoy, I enjoy being with them and I love them, but I, I just feel like that out of all the things that people think are, are important and other things that your children, you know, they should be a top priority. And, you know, I think to, to be honest, Chris, like things, experiences, certain things, they don't bring me real joy, maybe just for a minute, things like that. But I can tell you like the the time that I spend with my kids and the the influence that I have on them is really important to me. And I don't like to let people down. I don't like to let down people that I care about. I don't even like to let down people I don't care about. And so to feel like I would be letting down one of my children who I know, you know, we are our children's hero. They don't give a shit about how much money we have until maybe they're like 18 or 20. Then they may care. But (laughs) at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, 
They they don't care how much money you have. They they may be proud of you if you tell them that yeah, daddy had a great day today and did this deal or that deal. But, you know, they love you unconditionally. And to prioritize things or other people ahead of someone who loves you unconditionally, the only reason a child would ever stop loving you unconditionally, I believe, is because of something you did. They don't learn that, right? I mean, they don't just wake up one day and I don't know, they're just kids are pure and they love you. And I just feel a great sense of responsibility to, you know, be a person who not only says these things, but leads by example. Yeah. I think one of the cool things about, you know, just growing up more and, and being around more dads or, you know, being in YPO is like, you don't see people when people are at their best and they're coming in and they're telling you what's going on. It's like my something about their kids or something about yeah. their family. It's nobody's coming and going like, I've had the best week of my life. I bought a plane this week yeah. and it's just the best thing ever. Yeah. Well, it's funny. One of the things that honestly, that one of the things that I've noticed about things like that, unless you're just the type of person, you know, there's just different types of people out there. Right. But for me, I'm not that guy where I'm not going to roll in and talk about, oh, look at this new watch I just bought <laughs> or this plane or this car or whatever. It almost just, it almost makes me feel like an asshole. I, I've almost tried to stay away from as much of that stuff as I possibly can because I want to talk about the things that do matter, yep. that, that, you know, not the surface stuff. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the thing I'm most proud of at this point in my life is being a dad. Yeah. I really, truly am. It's, it's, you live by it. I've, it's been something that I look up to you for. It's had a huge impact on me. And I know it just has an impact on a lot of entrepreneurs because, and not just entrepreneurs, people that are very passionate about their career, the world pushes you away from your kids, not maliciously, but go to that dinner, yeah, celebrate that night, yeah. wake up the next morning and go to Vegas. Like the whole system is designed actually to, to test you where where you're going to prioritize and there's weeks i feel like i did great and i won that week and then there's some weeks i end and i'm like man i haven't been at home at all this week yeah and that's okay i mean it ebbs and flows and and believe me i'm not i'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but i will tell you every day that goes by the one thing that that this transaction has done for me from a financial aspect of the freedom is it really it's bought me time yeah. and that's what's most important to me i don't have a great story about any other things that i've gone and done or something like that I, what it's done for me is it's bought me time. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think I said this before we got started is, you know, a lot of people have these these noble causes that are so important to them, you know, whether it's saving the planet or, you know, political landscape issues or whatever, whatever the case may be. You know, I, there's lots of people out there that are fighting for a cause and they're neglecting their children, right? They've made that cause greater than their children, their own children. For me, my first priority and the biggest impact and influence that I want to have is on my children. And then I will expand that out to friends, to my you know team, to people that I come in contact with every day. But I am going to and am prioritizing the influence and the impact that I can have on my children first, because I want them to grow up and be, I want them to experience life in the most incredible way that they can. And that doesn't mean giving them everything or sheltering them, sheltering them, them from things. It's just 
to build their confidence. I mean, I have a nine-year-old little girl who is like beautiful and funny and smart. And right now she's going through traumatic insecurities in school because she's behind in math in the, at nine years old. And she's as creative and funny and smart as anybody I've ever met. And I'm like, dude, that's no big deal. <laughs> I'm not going to allow an elementary school teacher or a group of people or a, 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 a test to make allow my nine-year-old daughter to be insecure about whether she's smart or not and doesn't now want to go to school, right? So I can be distracted by all the other things that could be going on, or I could be 100% honed in and focused on what she needs that's going to build her confidence and that's going to build her, you know, give her the, 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 the ways to like think through and decision make and problem solve and and balance emotions and things of that nature. I've got that going on with my son and my daughter. And any parent out there who doesn't think that their children are experiencing incredible things in today's world with social media and atten attention, appearance and this and that, they're just too busy. They're yep. too busy to know what's going on. And that, that doesn't mean that they're bad parents and that doesn't mean that that child's gonna grow up and have all sorts of problems and stuff like that. But I seem to come across people on a daily basis that's like, oh, so-and-so has this issue, this issue, this issue, and it stems from childhood. There's, you know, there's just so much evidence that what, you know, you and I, we listen to this song in YPO, The House That Built Me, Yeah, Miranda Lambert. The listen whole, to it, folks. <laughs> go listen to that song. And the song, the premise of the song is, it's just about a person reliving their childhood and the experiences that they felt, what it felt like to pull up to their house, what it felt like to, to walk in after school, was it loud? Was it chaotic? Was it calm? Was it loving? Did it smell like cookies when you got home or did it smell like, you know, dog crap? I don't know. I mean, there's there's kids all around experiencing different versions. And my goal is that the memories that my children have, the traditions, the memories and all those things are as good as I can potentially give them in. And, and so that's why I'm so focused on it. So my priority is my children and, you know, and then Beyond that, I want to have a good influence on others around me. But, you know, so many people, I think they focus on the, on the people that don't matter. Yep. It's like, I don't know. We spend a lot of our life trying to please people that don't matter. Impress, Impress. please people that don't matter. Like, I mean, I've just learned like it just it's life is too short and it's already complicated. So why do I want to spend my energy and effort and focus trying to impress people that don't matter? And I don't, I'm not saying you shouldn't take pride in things and all those other things. I'm just going to start with my children. Yep. And then from there, it's, you know, I, as you know, you mentioned, you know, going through personal things. I've been going through a divorce for three years. Okay. So I would encourage anybody that has a spouse that is in a, in a good, healthy relationship, you know, you should prioritize that spouse. I don't have that. So when I talk about my children right now, they are my number one priority. Yep. And then beyond that, next to that would be my parents, the people who love me and have raised me and they're now getting older and I want to be a part of their life in a great way and have a positive impact and influence and, and things of that nature. And then from there, who matters? It's the people around me that I know that care about me. Someone like you. It's someone like Will Churchill. It's someone like, you know, Daniel Ayaga, who I've worked with for 20 years. It's not you know, the random guy that I met at the Fort Worth fight night on Monday Yep. <laughs> that, that I don't need to impress and yeah. don't care to impress. Yep. 
If you want to see a bunch of grown men weep like babies, play the Miranda Lambert song. And I think it was you you listened to it the first time and yep. it's your recollection of your childhood. No, nope. so you just so the you listen to it three times. Just the first time, just listen to it. Just listen to it with no expectations. The second time, do the recollection of your childhood. That's right. The third time is envision what your children are going to say. Yep. And so that's what I think about every day. When I was down earlier in your office, I said, man, it's so peaceful down here, <laughs> right? It's, that's great. That's that's a memory. That's a, that's an experience that I'm having in this office, the environment and all that stuff. And, that, and the same thing for your children. What environment, what do you want them to remember? Is it mom and dad constantly fighting? Is it like mom and dad always have people over that's drinking and hanging out? Is it that the babysitter's watch me most nights of the week because mom and dad had important things to do or whatever, whatever the different variations of people's lives are. I just know exactly what's the most important to me and listening to that song, weeping like a baby. And I'm thinking about, <laughs> you know, the environment that my children and the people that they're going to be exposed to it. It's no less important than like, if you're going to tell your child, you can't watch a rated R movie at 10 years old, or you can't be on TikTok because it's not healthy. Okay, well, what are the things that they're seeing from from their own parent that they they literally you're their hero? They're you're you're their most important role model that they're going to learn from. To me, that's just why it's so important. Again, it's not something I wake up and literally I'm just like, I just want to be Mr. Rogers of dads because <laughs> I don't. I mean, there, but I just I feel a, a huge sense of responsibility. To do that and be that. Put on your little cardigan and here comes Kevin, Mr. Rogers. Now, I would just finish by saying from my own perspective, and you you know this, I've had a little bit of success in business. And for many years, that would be my highlight. Yeah. I have poured pretty much the last two years of my life into rebuilding my family, investing in my marriage, investing in my kids creating a unit and I would consider it it's not the 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 battle's not over it's not the battle the the game's not over but it's the biggest victory that I have the accomplishment I feel there is infinitely greater than any business deal that's ever closed or any amount of money that's ever been made yeah and as a friend I can tell you you look at more peace and happy with where you're at in the last two years than I've since I've known you yep I mean and again, all these things aren't easy, but yeah, it's, at the end of the day, we're all going to wake up and look back and no one's going to remember the the magazine cover or the award or this or that. It's all cool stuff. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. But at the end of the day, it's like you're going to look back and think about the things that matter. We'll end it on the quote we were talking about before we started. It's easier to build a life that you don't want than to build the life that you want. It's true. Kevin, you're the man. I love you, buddy. Love Thanks you for too. having me. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Ford podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.